0: Light in the darkness There were a howls of protest in the Friday evenings, evening news in the city Perhaps you saw it No sooner do our city politicians get elected And sit down together No sooner do they meet then they fall to discussing their own pay structures, their own salaries. It seems to confirm all our suspicions that these folks are, are in it for what they can get. They're in the trough. At least that was the thrust of the headline. Actually, uh, perhaps like me, you uh, scurried through to read the article. Um, the headline and the story, to be fair, didn't quite match together. There are some issues of inequality and uh, things that have got wrong over the years to be addressed, some anomalies to be tackled. And you could argue that they set that in motion to get it out of the way so as to concentrate on much more important matters. Well, maybe. I trust so, I hope so. You see, we're used to a world where on the one hand uh, we hear that there is massive apathy. You know, why should I bother? Look at these people. What have they ever done for us? And real fury on the other. Fury on the front page. Howls of protest. We know these characters, don't we? You know, Mrs. Raging of Restylric, she appears. Mr. Furious of Ferny Hill. They seem familiar characters. And in any end you find yourself asking as you read what they say, why are, what are these people there so furious about? What are they for? Why are they there? Well, the shock here in Isaiah is that exactly that kind of question is being asked about God's own people. And God asks it sharply and powerfully of his people. Isaiah was used to a world also where there were howls of protest. Only in his case, the howls were not from the media and from the local scene. Instead, they were from the heart of God's own people from the temple, from those who shared God's, uh, shared his faith. We seem to do all the right things, but it doesn't seem to work. Where are you, God? You've told us to do these things and we do them and uh, uh, we kind of, we, we've really got immersed in doing them. But, but what good does it do us when we pray? You don't seem to hear. Howls of protest and, and the fury almost, dare I say it, of the God who has to ask such sharp questions. Of his people. Isaiah's message you see is first and foremost here to God's own people and it's as if Isaiah wants to say to them, you have not taken your faith far enough. You've started but you have not gone on. That's the thrust of it. And secondly, Isaiah wants to These people to see that God sees engagement in the issues of the world as the mark and the proof of conversion. That's how it works, it seems, for Isaiah. Let's follow as Isaiah spells it out in two great steps. The first is quite a long step. I I chuckled as um, we were talking about the um, stony pathway or whatever it was as I walked up the steps to the pulpit there. Here's a long step, verse 1 to 12. Uh, Two great big steps and then we'll see a shorter one in verse 13 to 14. And the issue on the table of course is this business of fasting, spiritual discipline, we would call it. What is it to do right by God? And uh, what the burden of these first 12 verses is is very powerful and very simple. God says, Isaiah says, to fast is to show love to your neighbour in God's name. To fast is to show love to your neighbour in God's name. And first of all, from verses 2 to 5, we are given a vision of fasting that's done right, but seems to receive no blessing. And then from verse 6 to 12, we're told about the fasting that God blesses. So first of all, from verses 2 to 5, we are shown this world of daily discipline. We're shown this earnest and solemn business this desire to want to do things right by God, this concern to honour God by his people. But as someone has said, and it's picked up in these verses, there is a a seem about it. They seem to want more of God. There's a kind of as if about it all. They're doing this as if they really wanted to engage with God. But actually, perhaps they don't. It doesn't ring true. Verse 3, for example, Why have we fasted, they say, And you have not seen it as if what they were doing was to catch God's eye. That seems to be their motivation. They want to be noticed. I I wince when I read these things. My primary school teachers used to despair of me. I, I never forget the report comment which simply said, Mike always has to be in the limelight. You can feel the despair of that comment, can't you? You have to ask hard questions and no more so than those of us who go into, quote, the ministry. Why are we in it? What are our motives? What are we in it for? To be a Christian leader. It's good to ask hard questions occasionally. Then Isaiah goes on in the second half of chapter, verse 3, and talks about the the mixed motives, the inconsistent behaviour on the day of your fasting. You do as you please. And you exploit all your workers. They know. They know what you're like. They know what kind of a colleague and a boss you are. And they know that things just don't tie up. You're very religious. You do things well in that area, but it hasn't gone from one box to the other. That's the problem. It's inconsistent behavior. And as a result, in verse 4, your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife, uh, striking each other with wicked fists. Well, I'm not expecting to see a lot of that on the street outside the church this morning, Uh, but you never know. You've heard of stranger things sometimes in church life. But that's what it seems to end up like. And I don't know, know, we can't tell whether it was about the details of what they were doing, but the outcome is not a a pretty sight. And the devastating verdict comes in verse 5. This is simply unacceptable to the Lord unacceptable. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this, please. You know that Jesus said he expected his followers to fast, not to eat sometimes, so as to invest the time that you would have spent buying and eating and preparing the food in prayer. You know that he teaches that his people should fast as a tool of special spiritual engagement. It's one of the perhaps slightly more disturbing things of our world that when, when the war in Iraq was on no one called us as a nation to pray. Now in the past that had been a feature uh, the archbishop or even the prime minister would call the nation to prayer uh, there were calls to pray but I don't think there was that sense of, of that going on and Jesus assumes that we will use fasting like that not just food of course you know, the program that you might have watched on the telly you, you won't watch it and you'll put that time aside to pray to meet with God's people. The, the good shopping that you would like to have done, you, you won't do it this day. Uh, you'll you'll put that time in to some spiritual discipline and prayer and input and so on. That's Jesus assumption. We ask for God to step into a particular situation. We ask for the Lord's help to deal with a particularly difficult set of circumstances. We give up good things in order to make a spiritual investment, and that's the pattern of Christian living don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we don't do that. But the fasting Isaiah is dealing with had started out good and created a good impression of godliness and piety. But the reality was a long, long way away. It had almost become a kind of superstition. A kind of business that just focuses in on itself. Self-centred, a matter of honour. And worse, as we've seen in verses 3 and 4, it had become a thin veneer of the bad ways of behaving, so bad that that everybody else could see it. Somehow these people couldn't see it. People who noticed it most were their colleagues and their contemporaries. That, says Isaiah, is fasting that God will not bless but lest you should despair. Notice the pattern. Isaiah knocks things down in order to build new things. You have to do that, don't you, in the construction industry. And so too, in the spiritual business too. Isaiah knocks it down in order to build up straight away. He moves into verses 6 to 12. Having cleared the ground, he starts to build again. What does fasting that God blesses look like? Here is vision. God's vision of how things are to be with God's people. Here, if you really want to please God as one of his people, here's how to be. Isaiah's appeal, you see, is to turn the inward out. I think that's a real word to us in our age of individuality, individually designed spirituality. Again, please don't get me wrong. One of the great things about the gospel, one of the great things about scripture is to say From it that God is passionate about you as an individual. I love that children's song, you know, I am special because God has made me, made me me for all uh, that I am and not. And that's a, a tremendous thing to say in an age where people are looking for individual affirmation. I want to know that somebody's noticed me. That's why they write all over the walls sometimes. It's the only way to express themselves in our kind of culture. And we have a gospel that says... God is passionate about you and you and you. God longs to share his life with you. God longs for you to be involved in his plan and his purposes. You, individually. What a great gospel message that is. God longs for you to be all that he intended you to be. But here it's the real challenge to discover that connecting with God goes beyond that. To connect with the living God It's quite clear. It means connecting with other people. And not just his own people, but then to be connected with the contemporary world as Isaiah found it and as we found it in Jesus' time and in ours. It means so to be shaped by the heart of God that we are shaped and moulded by what he longs for. And there's too much here to go through every verse. Justice, true freedom, Provision for those in any kind of need. Welcome for those from all over the place. The thrust of these verses, what pleases God, is about creating a society that really does care in the community. A society that reflects God's concern for social reform. You see that in verse 6. About meeting real needs in loving care with and for real people, verse 7. About fostering family welfare, strong structures in our society, about giving people new starts. In case you miss it, it starts all over again in verse 9. It's about a refusal to get caught up in that luxury of pointing the finger. I remember when I was learning to preach, the man who taught us said that uh, never point at people. It's It's a very demeaning gesture. That's uh, one all too common, I think, amongst preachers. You can't answer back when I point the finger at you. Well, maybe you can. <laughs> but Isaiah says, no, that's not appropriate behaviour. Passing the buck, gossiping, blaming, all that culture, putting the knife in. No, no. That's not the way to go. It's about a lifestyle choice, we call it. A choice to give up self-indulgence and greed and to replace them with justice and an open-handed generosity. In the end, it's about the vision that God has for us as his people in this world at this time. Verse 8 and verse 10, perhaps you noticed it twice, we're told, it will be in the end a light shining out, a light that rises in the darkness. What was it Jesus said? I want you to be salt. I want you to be a light. Set on a hill, shining out into the world. Now this you see is what lies behind having a special Sunday like this, Beulah Sunday. What a beautiful description of Beulah we heard uh, earlier on. Perhaps it's an unusual name for a Christian home in which our older friends and members enjoy. But it signals the twin priorities of caring for one another and relating to the Lord. And in some ways it's rather delightful that that common exercise breaks all our barriers down. You know, we've, we've got an Episcopalian preaching. I should say, uh, Ian, forgive me, I got fired at last when I took on this new job. I am not officially a canon any longer. Uh, in, in the Episcopal Church, you only get the title as long as you do the job, which is quite a healthy model, actually. So when I moved from St. Thomas's to the wider role, I lost that particular handle. But uh, there we go. And we've had, we've had a Presbyterian here who, who leads the ministry at the home. And you are Baptist. But the labels don't mean anything as we come together and as we share these things together. And as we seek to improve the situation, I've enjoying the vision in the back of my mind of our good friends in Beulah sitting in their armchairs. I hope they're still with us just now. I suppose an improvement that you could make to the armchairs, most of us have this in our armchairs, is that you build in a remote control. And if it's getting a bit much, you just hit that button and change channel. My word, that would be a good discipline for the preachers amongst us, wouldn't it? Here are the twin priorities, you see, that bring us together, that express our commitment to God, caring for one another, relating to the Lord. And I want to say very briefly, if I may, that these twin agendas are what I've been very pleased to discover when I moved from St. Thomas' to work with Evangelical Alliance in Scotland and I, I trust um, everybody has one of these little leaflets I want to encourage you I know your church is a member I want to encourage you before you go to scribble in the details and if you're not already a personal member then to join Evangelical Alliance there's only three of us May Barr is our administrator in an office in Glasgow Jeremy Balfour known well to you is the person who leads our ministry in engaging with the Scottish Parliament and helping churches up and down the country work out how to relate to our politicians. And I'm now the General Secretary. We try and work as a little team. Jeremy's focus is the Parliament. Mine, I think, will be more in terms of churches and Christian organisations. We're made up of individuals like you, of churches and of Christian organisations. And I suppose it's true to say that the only language our politicians understand is the language of numbers so if I could say that there were you know hundreds of thousands of people in Scotland who signed up to EA then they might listen very carefully we're not in it just to build up the numbers but we want to engage with them and what I've discovered in Evangelical Alliance is something of the same understanding about recovering this way of seeing church And about helping one another to re-enter the public spaces which one way and another we've kept away from for some time. Showing our contemporaries what God looks like, what the gospel is, what Christian people do. And the beautiful description that comes in verse 12, repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings, And we're not just talking about Iraq here, we're talking about Edinburgh, about Scotland, about your workplace, about your colleagues and your contemporaries, about our social structures, about our political structures. What a beautiful description that would be. When you ask them, what do you think of Christians? Oh yeah, they're the people who repair the broken walls. They're the people who who put the streets back together again, who build community. I was very moved to be here Uh, in the run-up to the election. I think it was a remarkable thing. I think I'm right in saying that it was almost only churches and Christian groups like Evangelical Alliance and CARE that called the politicians together for the hustings. Uh, Most of the other events were rallies. You know, you could only go if you were a party member and you only heard from the one party. Uh, But we had these half a dozen folks here on the platform. It was a very moving evening, actually the depth of the questions that were asked from the floor here, the challenge to these individuals about what they believe and what they think and how they might change things. What moved me about that night, and I was very moved by it, was the kind of growing recognition on the platform that things have to change. Our society cannot go on like it's going, whether it's in the area of genetic management or crime and punishment or whether it's in the area of child protection, or education, or economics, or our relationship with Europe, even our decision-making process and the way we spend public money, it's got to change. And by the end of it, my, my heart was kind of, I don't know how to describe it really, but I longed to be able to say to them, yeah, we really want to get behind you. Actually, the only way to build lasting change is for you to come back to this vision. Of who God is and what He wants to do with us. To come back to the gospel so that people are changed and then their society is changed. Maybe we'll have a platform to continue that conversation, but it was a moving moment. It's no surprise, you see, as I read that second reading a little while ago, to find that Jesus frames His ministry with this part of Isaiah. If you were to be alongside Jesus and say to Him, What do you think you're doing? He turns you back to Isaiah 61 and behind it to Isaiah 58. This vision of the fasting that God blesses. Put those things together you see, both the fast without blessing and the fasting that God blesses. And you can see, can't you, what has happened. The real issue, the real challenge has had to come because these Godly people have kept their vision to themselves. They've made it personal and they've kept it within their own orbit. How easy that is. You don't have to study Christian history for very long. You don't have to look very hard amongst contemporary Christianity to see that this is a constant pull on God's people. These folks, they would be good 21st century Edinburgh people They do things their way, thank you. Even in the temple, even in the church. They'll be the judges, thank you very much, of who they listen to and whose authority they respect and who they get involved with. They'll be the ones who decide how they run their own lives. And in short, what happens is that we meet a group of people who are good at religion but their religion's doing no good. It's a very painful picture. They believe, but they haven't taken it far enough. That's the point. It's a kind of tragic scenario. They're genuine people honestly seeking God, but somehow they got distracted along the way. They got stuck along the way. Now, I'm aware of uh, our good friends in Beulah, uh, and they will laugh at me because uh, exactly this happened to me as I was preparing. Uh, You know what they call these things, of course. They're called senior moments. I met a delightful older lady at a book launch which Jeremy had taken part in at New College this week, the book about God and society, Christians reflecting on engaging with the Parliament, a good book and I recommend it to you. Ian will be delighted to give you the publication details so you can support Jeremy by buying it. But this good lady was struggling to remember the name of one of the journalists there. I'd never met him so I couldn't help her, at least I hadn't forgotten. Oh dear, she sighed with a very heavy sigh. I have so many senior moments these days, I've forgotten what a junior moment was. <laughs> I'm sure it never happens to you, you, you you're never doing something and you have got the stairs and then you have to come all the way back down again to exactly where you were and stand for two or three minutes to work out what it was you went up for. I did it in the middle of preparation with a Brazilian visitor who gave us a clock and I'd I got this memory, I'd written it down to, to put a battery in it and uh, I went all the way up the stairs and forgot the battery and, and I went down the stairs and I still couldn't remember it was the battery so I made myself some coffee anyway. <laughs> it's kind of tragic and poignant, isn't it, really? Please pray for me. <clears throat> but how much more when these believers They kind of start out and then lose their way. They just don't go far enough. Through his servant Isaiah, God has to speak to them, to call to them long and loud, to stop them in their tracks. Did you notice way back in verse 1? Shout it aloud. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion. Tell them about their sins, because that's what it is. They're so far gone, he has to use the strongest language. Isaiah, you see, is on to a bunch of people, secure in the knowledge that they are God's people, that they belong to God. People clear in their identity. People who seem to know what their calling is. But somehow, they've missed the point. They have not gone far enough. They are not the light that they should be. Now already in the first 12 verses, it's as if he said this twice. But then in the last two verses, verse 13 and 14, to make absolutely sure, he says it again with a slightly different angle. Look for a moment with me at those last two verses. To honour the Sabbath, he says, is to express your love to God. That's the end of it. The third stage, if you like. He repeats the message of verse 1 to 12 in verse 13 to 14. Now now today would not be the day to get into a long conversation about just what the Sabbath is and how you work it, whether it's exactly Sunday or something different. But you can see the issue, can't you? It's the shape of your timetable that he's speaking about. That will reveal where your heart lies. That will show you what's really going on the shape of your timetable now I'm aware that there are many of us in the chapel this morning overwhelmed by the timetable maybe in your world the timetable just runs you as you hurtle through day after day of confusion and conflict days ordered and organised and controlled it seems by anybody except you whether they be younger folks or older folks or employers or colleagues or whatever you would give your right arm for a bit of space. You want time and you can't have it. I'm also aware that amongst some of us, maybe some of our friends in Beulah listening in this morning, you actually miss that timetable now and you've all the time in the world. And that's how it seems to be. It's very frustrating, isn't it? When you want the time, you can't have it. And when you've got it, you're not sure you always want quite so much of it. It's rather, I suppose, the same as Jesus does in Matthew 6. This is what Isaiah is doing when Jesus tells his friends not to worry, but to settle in their minds and hearts what really is controlling their lives. Who is it that shapes the timetable? Not cash values, not numbers, but God's care and God's concern. That's the thrust of it and that's the shape of it. And you're invited, along with God's people here, to set aside prime time in your week to meet with God's people, to hear God's word as we're trying to do together this morning, to worship Christ and to seek the Holy Spirit's perspective on the world in which we live. And what you're saying in shaping your life like this, and our friends are very surprised that I enjoyed the moment when I was talking to the politicians on the platform just as people were arriving and their eyes were like saucers when I said if you were to come here on a Sunday you'd hardly get a seat. And they were amazed. Here are all these people who shape their lives like this. They'll notice. They'll see. And what you say when you're shaping your life like this is that your trust is ultimately in God. Not in cash values. Not in numbers. So you don't do what you please. Did you notice that twice in verse 13? Instead you set yourself to please God. That way comes the joy and the victory promised in verse 14. Isaiah's message you see as we come to a conclusion is first and foremost to God's own people you have not taken your faith far enough Secondly, Isaiah's message is that God sees engagement in the world as a mark of conversion. Bill kindly described me as a friend of the chapel and I value that friendship and particularly your support and your encouragement to me over the years. It's been a huge value. But These things are what Beulah Sunday is about. But it's only a start Can I say ever so gently to you, a word to you as a congregation. Don't just rejoice that Beulah is there. Don't just support it. Please do. Make sure you can go on Saturday next. Let's see if that experiment really works. Pray for those who minister there. Pray for those who are residents and their witness of contentment in God's hands. Their happiness. It's a beautiful image that we saw. But don't stop there. Don't just go away from here thinking, great, that's fine, Beulah's there and it's all right. I don't have to do any more. For Isaiah's challenge is to go beyond. What about your world? What about your people? What about your situation? Where you'll be at 12 o'clock tomorrow? The people that you'll be dealing with. What about those who speak on our behalf like Jeremy? Let's get behind folks like him. Let's encourage one another as we seek to engage in the different worlds where we work and live and have our being and seek to be God's people and God's ambassadors. That's what Beulah's about. It's just one expression of what amounts to a charter to deal with people at the level of their deepest needs. And that's what we're celebrating this morning. But I wonder if, like me, you have felt the challenge of Isaiah's words ringing down the century. People need to know the Lord, says Ian White in one of his songs. Our politicians here recognize that things must change. And Isaiah says, you God's people have the key to that change. To honour the Sabbath will be to express your love to God. To fast will be to show love to your neighbour. And those things together will mean you will be under God light in the darkness let's pray for a moment